Welcome to episode 8 of Under Our Feet. This one is about the continental glaciers that have periodically swept across Wisconsin from the north, and about the landscapes that this ice leaves behind. I was debating the order for this episode and the next one. Today, we're talking about the majority of Wisconsin that was covered by ice. On the next episode, we'll talk about the Driftless Area, which is the one corner of Wisconsin down in the southwest that was never touched by a glacier. Since glaciers reshape the landscape that they ride over, the landscape in the Driftless Area is older than that of the rest of Wisconsin, and represents what it would have looked like if continental ice sheets had never covered the rest of the state. So in some ways, it would make sense to do an episode on the Driftless Area first, since the landforms down there are older. But since the Driftless Area is defined by the extent of the glaciers that never reached it, I think it's fair to say that geographically, it's kind of a product of the ice sheets even if they never went there. Plus, in the Driftless Area episode, there's many references to the glaciers, so I decided that it makes the most sense to do this one first. So today, a story of Earth's climate and the changes it can make on the land, and why Wisconsin is one of the best places in the world to study this. But first, here's what you can do to help out the show. The biggest thing is to spread the word. Tell someone you know to try out listening. Send out an email or a tweet. You can tag us at UOFpod on Twitter. If you're really liking what you hear and want to help support the show and the work we do here at Under Our Feet, you can become a subscriber starting at just a dollar a month on Patreon. That gets you a shout out on the show. At $3 a month, you get a high quality bumper sticker. And at 15 and up, you can even get an exclusive Under Our Feet t-shirt. To join, there's a link at uofpod.org. Finally, take a moment to rate or review the podcast wherever you listen. Well, let's get on to the show. How did ice shape the landscape of most of Wisconsin? Why do ice sheets grow and retreat across North America? And why is understanding the land of Wisconsin so important to understanding the Earth's climate system? All that and more in just a second. Welcome to Under Our Feet, the podcast where we go deep into the earth and deep into time to explore the geologic forces and events that shape the world around us. I'm your host, Rudy Molinek, and this is season one, The Geology of Wisconsin. The landscape of Wisconsin is surprisingly varied. As a transplant to the upper Midwest, I arrived here 10 years ago, expecting flat cornfields and not much else. I'd bought into that whole flyover country narrative, that there's really not any landforms worth seeing between the Appalachian Mountains and the Rockies. It turns out that's totally wrong. And the glaciers, which seem like they should just bulldoze everything into a flat sheet, the glaciers are actually one of the main drivers of this landscape variability, especially in Wisconsin. From the hummocky terrain of the forested Northwoods, to the rolling hills of the Southeast, to the central sand plains, to Lake Superior itself, up here we live in a world shaped by ice. These landscapes are ones that inspire awe and wonder just as much as any mountains. If you're thinking of this region as flyover country, it's well worth reconsidering because you're missing out. So what does the state look like and how have glaciers shaped its surface? So yeah, so the, the glacial geology in Wisconsin is, is kind of, in my opinion, split up into two broad regimes. 
We'll come back to those two broad regimes here in a minute. But first, this is... My name's Luke Zoot. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Geoscience at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Luke is from Michigan, and when he was an undergraduate at Michigan State... I didn't really know what geoscience was. Uh, I was in this program that was a focus on natural science, and you could pick from about 10 majors, and one of the majors was geophysics. And so without knowing essentially anything about geophysics, I chose that the night I had to enroll for classes when I was a high school senior. And so I took some introductory geology classes as part of that, really liked those, kept going, went through geology programs, but there was certain aspects of uh, geoscience or geology that I didn't like and I wasn't particularly good at, which was memor- memorization of huge amounts of facts. It turns out I have a really bad memory, but I'm pretty quick at figuring things out. And so I really liked uh, thinking about how things worked, the processes that led to formation of, of landforms, uh, working up from first principles to try to solve projects. And so some classes I did really good at, the ones that sort of had to have you had to figure things out. The ones that were a lot of uh, memorization, I, I didn't do good at. So so I was not a superstar undergraduate, <laughs> like probably most professors. I was good in the hard classes and not so good in the easier classes, essentially. So Luke likes thinking about processes. And when he went to Penn State for grad school, this led him to glaciology. So once I was there, I started working on projects in Antarctica, looking at seismology and started seeing these interesting things in the seismic records we had from Antarctica, which turned out to be ice quakes, which is where the glacier sits on uh, the bed beneath it, and it sort of jerks forward real quickly, and that jerking forward emits seismic energy, and you can record that with little, basically microphones, but they're called seismometers. But at that point, there was not really a good explanation for what was causing them. We knew it was something that where the glacier was sitting at the bed, and we knew it was really important to understand how the glacier moved over its bed because that essentially regulates how fast glaciers move. To really understand these ice quakes, Luke needed to replicate them in the lab, where he could actually see what was going on, rather than deep underneath the ice in Antarctica, where the bottom of the glacier was really inaccessible. So I basically built a tiny, really bad freezer out of... Um, out of uh, like pink insulation board around a machine that Penn State had in their fault mechanics lab to study how deep tectonic faults move. And I put ice in it and slid it over the bedrock and sort of tested this thing called rate and state friction for glaciers. And it was sort of the first time that someone had uh, tried to put um, a real deep understanding into subglacial slip that produced seismic events. And so from there, I got into combining field observations with experiments. And lest you think we've gotten really far away from Wisconsin talking about ice quakes in Antarctica, it's important to remember that the ice sheet that used to cover Wisconsin was a lot like the one currently on Antarctica. And as we'll talk about more in a few minutes, it's the processes Luke was studying underneath glaciers that shaped many of the familiar landforms in Wisconsin. So, in a sense, knowing what's going on under modern glaciers, or in his experiments, Luke and his colleagues can go and look at the landscape of Wisconsin, and then kind of back-calculate what was going on 30,000 years ago, when it was all still under a thick sheet of ice. But, 
Anyways, like Luke was saying, you can think of the glacial landscape of Wisconsin as consisting of two major domains, and these domains depend on the behavior of the lobe they were under. Lobes are subdivisions of the main ice sheet, and refer to the ice that covered a certain geographic area at a certain point in time. Luke's first regime of the Wisconsin landscape. It's the eastern side of the state and the southern part of the state uh, that were under the primarily under the, a lobe called the Green Bay Lobe, and then a little bit farther to the east, the Lake Michigan Lobe, which is what carved the Lake Michigan Basin. Those terrains acted like constant glaciers that were flowing from the north, bringing sediment down, uh, knocking down things that were high, filling in things that were low, flattening the terrain, in some areas building drumlins, and they were sort of constantly active. We'll talk more about some of these landforms and processes like building drumlins in a minute, so hold tight as Luke introduces the other regime, which is... Up in the northern part of the state, there's a giant lobe that came off the Laurentide Ice Sheet called the Superior Lobe, which flowed through the Lake Superior Basin, and it had several sublobes that spilled out of it, uh, three sublobes in Wisconsin in particular, and those sublobes are fed by the ice from the big globe that's in the Lake Superior Basin. We are going to start in the eastern part of the state, in that first domain, with actively flowing ice from the north and east in Lake Michigan. We'll come back to Luke to talk about the processes involved and the northern part of the state in a little bit, but our guide to the landscape of the Lake Michigan and Green Bay lobes of Wisconsin's past ice ages... Libby Ives. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. And since I recorded our interview, Libby finished her PhD. Congratulations, Libby. She's now a geologist with the United States Geological Survey. Anyways. And I'm a glacial geologist and sedimentologist. So I study glaciers and the landscapes that they form and the sediments that are moved around by them. Libby is a great guide through Wisconsin's glacial landscape because she's been immersed in it for almost her whole life. I grew up in Wisconsin. I'm from southeastern Wisconsin and through Girl Scouts and stuff, I spent a lot of time in the North Woods and the woods kind of around southeastern Wisconsin. And I've always just loved being outside and in nature and was kind of always in this landscape. And I think when you're a kid around here, when you're a kid in Wisconsin, you just, and even a lot of the upper Midwest, you just hear all about how this landscape was made by glaciers. So I guess that was kind of always in the back of my mind when you're outside and looking around and driving through the landscapes, like when you're driving down I-94 from Milwaukee to Madison and somebody's like oh those are drum ones like these rolling hills that you're going over um that's that's stuff I think you end up hearing a lot so it's always it's always there in the back of your mind and when I got to school I knew I wanted to do science and I knew I wanted to be outside and I ended up taking at Northern Michigan University where I did my undergrad a bunch of geography classes and um, earth science classes. And I just thought they were great and really cool and had a lot of fun with it. So I just kept um, kept taking those classes and ended up majoring in earth science. I know I'm teasing this a bit, but I promise we'll come back to drumlins, which you now know can look like rolling hills. But we're going to start with a different landform, the kettles. This word is almost ubiquitous if you spend time in Wisconsin. 
Glaciated areas are dotted with kettle lakes, which are deep, round lakes that really aren't connected to any streams. You might have heard of the Kettle Moraine, which is a landscape feature in state forest that runs through the southeastern part of the state, and we'll definitely get more in-depth on that in particular, but for now let's focus in on the kettles, because Libby has a great story for how she learned about kettles. When you emailed me these questions and were like, how did you end up studying Wisconsin glacial geology? I just kind of got like a, a throwback to sixth grade. We did this overnight camp or this sixth grade camp at Camp Whitcomb Mason, somewhere in the Kettle Moraine, <laughs> I think. And we, you don't get a lot of earth science, I think, in elementary school and high school. Um, but we, that sixth grade class, Mr. Sykes and Mr. Sierra at higher elementary in Waukesha, Wisconsin, they, um, we did do some glacial geology. And when we were at sixth grade camp, we measured a kettle. We did, we made a topographic map of this, this kettle, um, in the woods. And so that measuring essentially with a stake and a chain. So very old school. Um, so that was the first time I think I ever studied glacial geology. And I, I'm sure we had other earth science in, you know, elementary school, middle school that I just don't remember. Like I remember watching a volcano movie in seventh grade and that, you know, that was really cool, but it wasn't like the visceral hands-on sort of. Oh, and oh, the other part of that was um, one of our teachers tried to make a kettle just in the, like we had some just on the school property. So late in the winter, he like dug a hole and took us out there and we filled it with bags of ice from the grocery store or something. And then um, waited for it to melt in the spring. And it, it didn't create much of a, <laughs> of a hole, but the, again, the demonstration was still there. And that's, that's, I think that's something that still comes to mind even today when I'm like drawing on a map around glacial landscapes and trying to delineate them. Like I can picture exactly what that process was that melt out. As a former elementary school teacher myself, I can say with admiration that this was a heroic effort by Libby's teacher and well worth his effort. Because look at how well it stuck with Libby and perhaps even shaped her path into glacial geology. Buried in Libby's story is an explanation of how kettles form, which she got to experience so viscerally. But put a bit more simply, Kettles are kind of part of that in front of the glacier, which we call proglacial sort of settings. Kettles essentially form when you have a piece of big piece of glacier ice and a bunch of sediment, usually from the glacier, kind of buries it. And over time, that big chunk of ice will melt. And when the ice melts, the sediment sinks down and you form sort of a pit. Uh, what you call a kettle, or sometimes they're called prairie potholes out west a little more. They're, they're part of that proglacial landscape. So to break down the kettle process, a big chunk of ice, and I mean really big, anywhere from a few meters to even several kilometers, gets stranded as the main body of the glacier retreats. No longer fed by fresh flowing ice, it just stagnates and sits there. But as the glacier flows and melts, it's releasing out a ton of sediment, which then buries the chunk of ice and the surrounding landscape. So if you stop at that point and you were to go out and walk around, it would seem like a big flat plain of sand and gravel. If you started fast forwarding, the years start flashing by, very slowly a depression would start to form in the ground where that ice was. The ice is melting, 
And so the previously flat landscape, the ice part is sinking down, deflating. And I said you had to fast forward to see this happen because it's really slow. When we think of ice melting, it seems like a pretty rapid process, but it really depends. It depends on the temperature for one. So the air temperature and the, um, like the ground temperature has to be above freezing essentially. But the other thing that can melt ice is just like, I don't know, sun rays, I guess. So energy, direct energy from the sun. And when, when you have sediment on top of ice, that sediment essentially absorbs that energy and shields the ice from the sun. And so buried ice can persist for a pretty long time, especially um, in colder climates. We have evidence in Wisconsin of there being pretty solid permafrost in like Southern Wisconsin up until 14,000 years ago. So as long as you have conditions that support permafrost, which is essentially like frozen groundwater in the soil, um, that tells you it's below freezing almost all the time in that climate. So we were pretty sure there was permafrost until about 14,000 years ago in Southern Wisconsin. But the, the Laurentide ice sheet started retreating out of Wisconsin, like it started its retreat like 20 to 18,000 years ago. So there's easily like six to 4,000 years of permafrost. And during that time, that buried glacial ice probably would have been part of the permafrost system. It would have persisted for a, for a long time. That's thousands of years that these ice blocks buried and insulated by sediment are taking to melt. But when they're gone, they leave behind a kettle a circularish depression in the landscape, like where a buried balloon was popped. Those are the kettles. Earlier, I mentioned the Kettle Moraine, a famous landscape in the state, that some early 20th century geologists even tried to get named a national park. Now you know half the reason of the name. What about the other half? What's a moraine? Moraines are essentially piles of sediment that form at the very edge or the very end of a glacier. And so for us, when we study landscapes where the glaciers are no longer there, they sort of mark where the glacier stopped either, you know, either temporarily like on a year or multi-year basis, or for in the case of some of the Marines in Wisconsin, where they probably, where the glacier probably ended for like thousands of years. And in terms of this like subglacial, that's underneath the glacier versus proglacial or outside the glacier landscape, moraines are right on the boundary between those two. So glaciers are always in motion for the most part. So they're flowing from their center to their edges. And as they flow from the center to their edges, they're constantly bringing ice to the edge and they're constantly bringing more sediment to the edge. And so glacier, especially big glaciers like we had in Wisconsin that are parked at these um, terminal points for thousands of years, um, they'll just pile sediments on um, through a lot of different processes. Like you, the glacier can shove, you know, you, it can retreat a little bit and then push forward almost like a bulldozer. So it can shove up sediments into a pile. Um, you, with those rivers coming out of the glacier, you can deposit like parts, 
you know, river sediment essentially into moraines or the glacier can like override the moraine temporarily and deposit subglacial sediment on it. So moraines end up being kind of a smorgasbord of processes, but really what they do for us is they mark almost a moment or a period in time where the glacier was just sitting, where the end of the glacier was sitting in one spot. Because glaciers kind of act like conveyor belts for sediment, bringing rocks and materials from the center out to the edges of the ice sheet. When the edge stays at one place for a long time, that conveyor belt builds up a big pile of sediment, a moraine. Here in Madison, we're really close to the edge of the ice sheet's past extent. So if you go a little bit west or a little bit south, you have to go over and through the Johnstown moraine. Once you're past it, you're in the driftless area, which we'll talk about in the next episode. But the important thing now is that once you go past the moraine, you also go past where the ice sheet used to be. Let's get back to the kettle moraine, which presumably is one of those moraines that is pocked with kettles, and for a long time that's what geologists thought. But it turns out the story is a little more complicated than that. So the Kettle Rain is this really cool sort of landscape in southeastern Wisconsin that formed in what we call in glacial geology land an interlobate zone. So earlier when we were talking about moraines, I was talking about how you can, like with the meltwater and the sediment coming out of the front of the glacier, you can pile up all of this, all these sediments into a big moraine. But imagine what would happen if two, you know, ends of the glacier sort of came head to head. Then you have two parts of the glacier doing their moraine thing, you know, building up sediment through pushing, through meltwater, through all of these processes, but right up against each other. Um, and that's a interlobate zone and that's what the kettle moraine essentially is. And so we have to bat, we have to zoom out a little bit, I think, before we zoom in with the kettle moraine. And when we zoom out um, to the whole Laurentide ice sheet. So essentially imagine Canada looking like Antarctica does today, just covered with um, big glaciers and these glaciers, you know, the very edges of them essentially are what came down into Wisconsin and Michigan and the, the upper Midwest and New England. So we're right at the very edge um, and the other thing to imagine with ice sheets is that ice is sort of, ice isn't sort of, ice is a viscous fluid. So if you, I don't know, a simple way to imagine it is think of taking your favorite viscous fluid, be it honey or like latex paint or something, and just like dumping that in a pile on your kitchen counter or your driveway. Um, it would start out in a mound and then it would sort of splooge out from there. Um, and we're right, <laughs> we're at the edge of the Laurentide ice sheet in Wisconsin, so we're kind of at the edge of that splooge. A disclaimer to any kids that might be listening, make sure you ask your parents before you dump out a bunch of honey or paint onto your kitchen table. Anyways, before the most recent glacier flowed out of the Lake Michigan Basin and into Wisconsin. So the edge of this glacier came into the Michigan the Lake Michigan Basin or the, the low point on the landscape that is today, Lake Michigan, and it was, it's flowing through that. And then it hits 
um, the Niagara Escarpment. Which you'll remember from episode four when we talked about the escarpment in detail. It's Wisconsin's spindly thumb that stretches up into Lake Michigan, forming the Door Peninsula and protecting Green Bay. And it's hard enough and tall enough that it forced the glacier to sort of separate around it. And so part of the glacier continued flowing through the Lake Michigan basin and part of, so it went to the east of the Niagara Escarpment and then part of the glacier flowed through Green Bay, west of the Niagara Escarpment. And they, they sort of went around that. Then I get, so they were sort of, they were separated by the Niagara Escarpment and continued flowing down their respective low points in the landscape. And in southeastern Wisconsin, when the glaciers got big enough, they would have come together and sort of knit back together again. And that is our Kettle Moraine interlobate zone. The glaciers were coming from the north, centered on Canada's Hudson Bay. They saw the Michigan Basin full of soft sedimentary rocks and chewed right through, moving south and creating Lake Michigan. Then the ice hit the high limestone cliffs of that Niagara Escarpment, which is now the Door Peninsula, and split apart. It's like a river flowing around an island. But as the ice grew higher and extended farther south, the lobes eventually rejoined and squeezed between them a bunch of sediment and miltwater outwash. But what ends up happening is they're doing their moraine thing, but because they're squished together, the meltwater, because there's two big glaciers on either side of this sort of inner lobate zone, there's nowhere for that water to go, right? Um, except to be funneled down and out the front. And so the why the Kettle Moraine is so unique is because it's essentially a pile of sand and gravel um, because the glaciers brought a bunch of stuff there, but about, the glaciers brought a bunch of sediment there, but they also brought a bunch of meltwater. And together, those glaciers essentially created a valley um, for that water to flow through that was underlain periodically by, you know, and then you also get the kettle effect, which is where that's, you have so much water and so much sediment that you'll bury ice and then you that goes through that whole kettle making process too. So yeah, that's the kettle moraine and yeah. it's super cool. <laughs> okay, so the kettle moraine is one super cool feature of Eastern Wisconsin. Another beloved glacial landform are called eskers. So eskers are super cool because they, they just make these beautiful riverine, like sinuous, sort of shapes on the landscape, but unlike a river channel, which is shaped into the ground, um, eskers pop up out of the ground. They're a positive relief feature. So you're essentially, when you look at, you know, um, like a topographic map or a digital elevation model, which is what we use a lot now, like you see these eskers, just these sort of inverted rivers sort of popping out of the landscape. And they really are kind of inverted rivers. Water always flows where it's easiest to go. Normally, it cuts down into the landscape. But under a glacier, it can be easier to cut up into the ice than down into the rock below. Then, instead of depositing sediment at the bottom of the river channel that's, that's cut into the land, they just deposit it onto the rock into the negative space as the ice retreats, leaving behind these winding hills of debris. 
but you don't actually see too many of them in southern and eastern Wisconsin anymore. It turns out the material making up these hills has been really well sorted out by the flowing water. So in a populated area, most eskers have disappeared as people mine out the sand and gravel to use for things like road construction. Another landform we have a lot of down here, and that don't get torn down by people, are those drumlins I've been hyping all episode. So in paleontology, they call the, the like animals and plants that everybody's love, like charismatic fauna. So like T-Rexes are charismatic fauna. And I, I think of drumlins as charismatic landforms, at least in Wisconsin. Drumlins are, are a great example of a landform that forms underneath the glacier or subglacially. And they are elongate teardrop to sort of linear or line shaped hills. And the coolest thing about drumlins for reconstructing past ice sheets is that they point in the direction the glacier was flowing. Um, so they kind of, I don't know, they create a, a map of arrows that show you flow lines of, of the glacier. We actually do this in an intro geology lab here. We show students a map of drumlins and ask them to go to Google Earth and describe their three-dimensional shape. And then students write about how they think drumlins form in relation to the ice sheet. This lets them understand that these hills they might have seen their whole life that dot the landscape all over, and are especially visible on the highway between Madison and Milwaukee, that these hills, these drumlins, are clues that point and show the exact way the ice was flowing. But it turns out we still don't know exactly how they form. And the reason that process is so complicated and why we have a hard time understanding it is because one, it's really hard to observe like this happens beneath like, you know, a lot of glacier ice. And so it's hard to get under there and look at that, how that process is happening. But the other reason glacial, subglacial systems are so complicated is because you have a lot of a lot of processes and action that are that are kind of unusual to kind of have in combination. And so you have the weight of the glacier pressing down and also the glacier is, is slowly moving forward. So it's kind of pushing that way as well. Um, and then you have water in the system a lot of the time, especially when drumlins form. And so there's there's water flowing around in the subglacial system that's also under a lot of pressure from essentially from the thickness of the ice. And then depending, we were just talking about the porosity of sediments, right? So um, how much like does, when you have a sand and gravel with lots of space between these big grains, like the water likes to move through that. But when you have say like a really fine sand or a clay, um, the water has a hard time moving through that. And so um, wh where the glacier forces the water to go has a big impact on, um, on what happens subglacially on the landscape or what, I don't know, what sort of landforms the glacier creates. And this brings us back to Luke Zoot. Actually, just before I recorded our interview, we had stepped out of a freezer that adjoins his office. It's like one of those big walk-ins they might have at a restaurant or a college dining hall. But there's no food in here, just a bunch of metal and tubing that all centers around this device that looks like it's an early prototype of Tony Stark's arc reactor. In the middle of this device is a clear plexiglass donut filled with glacial ice. In here, what's called a ring shear, 
Luke and his students grind ice into different materials at realistic speeds and pressures, recreating glacial landscapes. The big win in a machine like this? Instead of being buried beneath miles of impenetrable ice, they can see what's going on in real time and gain great insights into the processes that occur beneath glaciers. And this is really important stuff. Like Luke said earlier, We knew it was really important to understand how the glacier moved over its bed because that essentially regulates how fast glaciers move. You might have heard recently about the Thwaites Glacier in Antarctica. Climate scientists call it the Doomsday Glacier because how fast it moves from land into the sea will dictate a lot about the speed of sea level rise around the world. It's actually named after Frederick Turville Thwaites, who was a glacial geologist in Wisconsin in the first part of the 20th century. That gives you an idea of how important this science is in the state. But back to Luke's point. With Thwaites Glacier, we want to understand what processes happen at its base, because then we can understand more about how it will move in the future. And since we can't actually go to the base of Thwaites Glacier in Antarctica, Machines like Luke's ring shear and the evidence of past ice sheets like the landscape of Wisconsin are both super important for understanding part of the future of ice on this planet. So we're going to change gears here a bit. We've gone over the main glacial landforms you might see in eastern Wisconsin, which is the first of Luke's two glacial landscape regimes here. In the eastern part of the state, glaciers flowed freely from the north, and through processes occurring beneath and in front of the glacier, sculpted landforms like kettles, moraines, eskers, and drumlins. There are also broad outwash plains like the Flats, where the city of Anago sits. If you're like me and aren't from Wisconsin, and you hear about Anago from a native and try to look it up on a map, you might not find it. Turns out its spelling is A-N-T-I-G-O, like Antigo. But... You can even see this if you do go to Google Maps and flip to Terrain View. Anago sits in sort of a flat-farmed triangle. To the north and east, green hills bounded in. These are the moraines of the last ice sheet. This area also marks kind of the transition from the first regime to the second. In the northern part of the state, the behavior of the ice was very different than that free flow. And as a result, so is the landscape that it shaped. To learn why, I took a field trip with Luke in one of his classes, up near Mellon, Wisconsin, revisiting some of the sites of the earlier episodes. We're at the tail end of the Pinocchian orogeny there, and on the edge of the Mid-Continent Rift. You might be wondering if you remember Episode 3 from the Rift, or Episode 1 from the Pinocchian orogeny, what these billion-plus-year-old tectonic events have to do with ice just a few tens of thousands of years ago. To find out, we took a hike up a surprisingly steep hill in Wisconsin. The audio here was recorded on top of a high ridge, overlooking a hummocky terrain of chaotic hills and valleys to the south that the time was covered in bright fall foliage. North of us, just out of sight, is the deep basin of Lake Superior. Below our feet, solid, hard-to-erode bedrock, remnants of the mid-continent rift. Okay, so what we're on right now is a bedrock high, right? And obviously. <laughs> and so the Superior Lobe's coming up out of Hudson Bay, and it's flowing down to the south, and it's coming down the Lake Superior Basin because remember the Lake Superior Basin, unlike the other Great Lakes, is a rift basin, and so it's much older and it's much deeper than the other Great Lakes. Whereas all the other Great Lakes are old river valleys that were like then 
reoccupied by glaciers and formed the lakes. This one is different, right? This one was already deep. That's why like there's all these volcanic rocks and stuff like out in the lake and on Isle Royal and whatever. And so, and so the Superior Lobe took advantage of that, right? And it's flowing from the northeast to the southwest. And it's kind of angled in part by the basin itself, right? And so the ice is coming along the basin and shooting off here past Duluth over into Minnesota. And the ice sheet coming south from Hudson Bay was rerouted into the Superior Basin. Instead of flowing due south like its neighbor in Lake Michigan, it was turned steeply to the southwest. But eventually, it built up enough to spill over the sides of the basin, defined by the high rims of bedrock like where we were standing. It's kind of like a bathtub overflowing and then spreading south into Wisconsin once again. One thing that happens is essentially uh, there's this big bedrock divide which we're standing on right now, right? And so the ice has to come over this bedrock divide and go that way, right? That's basically south. And in a run, when it's coming from the north and it's hitting this huge thing of bedrock, it has a hard time getting over it, right? And so the way that it can get over it is to basically build the superior lobe uh, surface elevation, build the ice up thick enough that it has enough driving stress to push it back past these giant bumps here and here and here like that. These are all bedrock ridges as far as you can see here. And once it gets past those bedrock ridges right here, it sort of spills over down into this Chippewa sublobe. So the ice builds up and up in the Lake Superior Basin, and eventually it's high enough to overflow the edges of the basin. Like I said, a bathtub slowly filling up with water until it spills over the sides. The thing that happens is it, it has to have a massive thickness to get at the shear stress to get past this, such that once it gets past this this area and then uh, down south of here where the bedrock slopes to the south, it kind of runs out of steam, right? And that's why this part of the this part of the state down here doesn't have ice, is because it was basically protected by the Superior Basin and this bedrock knob. So basically, this rock and this combined with the Superior Basin is why we have the driftless area, right? Because that's why the driftless area was never glaciated because the ice was funneled off to the west by the Superior Lobe and couldn't get over the bedrock knob to go straight south down to the driftless area. So the Superior Lobe down in the basin is sort of inflating and deflating. When it inflates, it feeds ice to the south, and the ice of the Chippewa sublobe is active. But when it deflates, the Chippewa sublobe is cut off and becomes stagnant. And this inflation and deflation, it depends on the climate. We define climate as temperature and precipitation. So how warm is it on average? What's the high? What's the low? And then how much does it rain? How frequently? And when? For ice sheets, this means a balance between how freezing the temperatures are and how much snowfall there is determines whether the ice grows or shrinks. So the main thing that's driving the inflation and the deflation of the glacier is two things, temperature and precipitation. Like in Antarctica, and most of it, it hardly snows at all. It's just so cold, the snow that does fall never melts. And so in this situation, it, it sort of inflates. And believe it or not, totally independently of Libby, Luke also turned to a metaphor that would be really sticky and messy if you try it at home. Just like if you took a glob of honey and put it on a desk, it wouldn't want to stay in that shape. It would sort of flow out to like a flatter shape. The ice is doing that, but at a much slower speed, right? And so in for the same reason, because like the glob of honey has a surface slope on it. Like if you put on a flat table and the glob of honey flows, mm -hmm. but say you put a grain of rice down, the ice can still flow over the grain, or sorry, the honey can still flow over the grain of rice. 
So what we're standing on, the bedrock ridge high above the fall-colored leaves, that's the grain of rice. You need the honey to spread from wherever you dump it on your desk to the grain of rice, and then build up enough to flow over it. I should say that Luke's office is surprisingly neat and clean for all this talk of dumping honey on desks. I interviewed Libby over Zoom, though, so I can't confirm the state of her desk. This is like a giant grain of rice, and at some point it becomes so big that it can't get past this, essentially. It can't, there's, there's still ice past there, but it can't keep feeding more ice to it, right? And so it just, it just wastes away. Might need to go into a different food group metaphor. <laughs> rice grains. Cheerio. Right, it becomes a, <laughs> right, like a garbanzo bean or something. And so when the Superior Lobe loses a little ice mass because the climate changes up in Canada or wherever it dictates it, it deflates, <laughs> right? And if it deflates a little bit, it can't get over this knob anymore. So that's the climate dynamics driving whether or not the ice can flow south out of Lake Superior and into the north woods of Wisconsin. What are the consequences of this for the landscape up there today? And that, what does it mean? It means all the ice that's on the other side there, that's down here, it just gets pinched off, right? And if it's not being supplied fresh ice, it essentially becomes a stagnant pile of ice and it just wastes away and dies, right? And so that's why the features you see down here aren't like synonymous with big, nice moraines like we see in the Green Bay Lobe. It's like the whole glacier just dies, deflates, creates all this surficial, um, uh, superglacial deposits, all these collapsed features all over. So what Luke is telling us here is that the key difference between his two regimes of glacial landscapes in Wisconsin, the first we talked about earlier in eastern Wisconsin and the Green Bay Lobe, with its nice, simple features like big moraines, drumlins, eskers, and the occasional kettle, it's really nothing like the northern part of the state. In the Green Bay Lobe, the constantly active ice shaped the land. Here in the Northwoods, the ice acted differently. It didn't advance and retreat neatly, but it would spill over the bedrock ridge and then get cut off and just sit there. Luke talked more about this when we were back in his office. The Lake Superior Lobe changes a little bit, uh, meaning that the, maybe the climate changes and the lakes period lobe gets a little smaller, those other sublobes essentially get cut off. And what that means is those lobes are constantly, uh, they're active ice, which is what we call ice when it's moving, and then there's stagnant ice, which is ice that's like dead and not moving. And when the ice is dead and not moving, all of the stuff that's up on top of the ice, all the dirt and the debris, just sort of melts down and is deposited on the surface. And so... What you have in the northern part of the state are all of these deposits that are uh, very hummocky uh, because they're the result of dead ice depositing the material that was on top of it or uh, ice being pushed out in front of the glacier and buried by uh, sediment that was ejected out the front of the glacier and then over time that ice melts. It's sort of like if you took a sandbox and you buried a balloon in it and you made the sandbox completely flat and then you came and popped the balloon, you'd have a hole where the balloon was. And that's essentially what's dictated a lot of the, the terrain of the northern part of the state because you had a lot of these dead ice, buried balloons that were popped, leaving this real bumpy, hummocky topography. And that wasn't as prevalent in the southern and eastern part of the state in the footprints of the Green Bay Lobe and the Lake Michigan Lobe. And so we have some hummocky topography, maybe in, mainly in the inner lobe area between the Lake Michigan Lobe and the Green Bay Lobe but much less in the areas like Madison and things like that. We have these other interesting features like drumlins and things like that that formed underneath the ice from this actively flowing glacier. So hopefully
hopefully that covers the glacial landscape that we walk in every day here in Wisconsin. Our world has been shaped by ice, by immense forces of continental glaciers. But why does it matter? I suppose one could argue that the landscape just is what it is. Why do we need to understand the ancient ice that shaped it? Isn't it just enough to see the land, know it, and move forward? Well, it's not so easy as that. Libby. As somebody who studies geomorphology and earth surface processes and, and all that, the, the landscape is always, always a reflection of climate. So the, the landscape we see now and the lands and what in the landforms we have preserved of previous landscapes. And when we look at a landscape, be it like in the mountains or in Wisconsin, um, the landscape and the landforms that we see are always a reflection of the temperature, the precipitation and the plants and animals that are allowed that are allowed to inhabit those, those spaces or are able to fill those niches and inhabit those spaces. Um, it just happens that in much of the Northern US and in Canada, and especially um, wonderfully preserved in the Great Lakes region are these glacial features that tell us about when it was much colder <laughs> um, in Wisconsin. So glacial features, Studying glacial features on the landscape are important because it tells us about the climate in the past in our region. And one of the common refrains of geologists is that the past is the key to the present and to the future. We have to look to the past to try to start understanding what our world might look like in the future, especially those big ice caps that currently stand just precariously on Greenland and Antarctica. I think I mentioned when I described Dremlins that it's really, really hard to see underneath a glacier. And so there's this huge push right now, and there has been for the last 20 some years, as we're trying to understand the impacts that climate change are, is going to have on our planet, is we're trying to better understand ice sheets and how ice sheets work in order to better understand how higher how fast the higher temperatures are going to melt them essentially. And in Wisconsin and the upper Midwest and Northern Europe too, we have these fantastic landscape records of things that happen underneath an ice sheet, right? Something that we have a really hard time observing say in Antarctica in the modern um, sense, it's really hard to get to the bottom of an ice sheet. So. Yeah, so glacial landscapes in Wisconsin help us understand our regional past, but they also inform our understanding of modern glaciers and how modern glaciers will respond to climate change. And Wisconsin, maybe surprisingly to you, is the perfect place to study those past processes and gain understanding of what the future might hold. You know, the last uh, ice age was called the Wisconsin glaciation, and it's been called that because a lot of the landforms that you see in Wisconsin are the best preserved um, features that you see. When I show these things in class, it's like a textbook example where people have just made sketches of like, here's this landform, and here's this landform, and here's this landform. They're just meant for illustrative purposes. They're not meant to actually generally represent anything that you'd really see in the world because it would be super uh, rare to find so many of those interesting glacial landforms in such 
a, a close proximity to each other. But that actually does happen in Wisconsin. So, so when I show these things in my class, I say, this is literally, what you're seeing here is literally like the page out of a textbook that you know people would draw just for illustrative purposes. Like, it, so it makes it a great place to do glacial geology. You can, you can see the full gamut of landforms that you'd like to see within just a, a couple hours of Madison. You know, it's a, it's, it's a great place to live because of that. Well said, Luke, a great place to live. Here in Wisconsin, we nestle ourselves into a landscape shaped by ice, a landscape that holds secrets to the behavior of vast ice sheets, which will help us to understand the future of ice in a changing climate. But I haven't forgotten about that corner of southwest Wisconsin where this isn't true, which was sheltered from the ice by the very bedrock high that Luke and I stood on this fall. Tune in to the next episode to learn all about the Driftless Area. I really hope you enjoyed this episode on Wisconsin's glacial geology and that you learned a lot about the landscapes that might be familiar to you. I could have made 10 episodes just on this topic, and each one would have been unique and interesting. So I hope I hit some sort of mark with this one. Thanks to Luke Zoot and Libby Ives for the excellent interviews. Thanks also to Sean Marcotte and the rest of the Glacial Geology Seminar this fall that helped me learn so much more about how ice works. Remember to rate and review the podcast and go ahead and tell a friend or two to check it out. Did you know that if you're on an Apple device, you can just tap the three dots next to the episode, select share episode, and send it directly in a text. Give it a try. And check out our page on Patreon. There's a link at uofpod.org, or you can go directly to patreon.com slash Every dollar helps make the show, and each month I give 10% of your contributions to an organization dedicated to the land and our relationship to it. December's was a special year in donation, and half of my Patreon support went to Honor the Earth, which we discussed in Episode 5 and the corresponding bonus episode. And, of course, thanks to their support for Jeremy Randolph Flagg and Katie Demetz. Make sure you come back next time for a great episode on the Driftless Area, where ice isn't the defining factor of the landscape. <laughs>